Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferentz.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, success in the music industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 81. So here we are, season three in video. That's right. If you missed the news, the show is now available on YouTube. There's also exclusive video content over there as well. So if you're listening to the audio-only version right now, please jump over to www.youtube.com slash at progressionspod. You need the at sign in there and subscribe there. And if you're watching on YouTube, hey, what's up? Okay, so let's get on with it. I've got an epic hang with 10-time Grammy-nominated record producer and mixer Damian Taylor for you today. We cover it all from mix tips and pre-production to building trust, responding to the music, and why it's our duty to make great music to progress civilization. So yeah, we kind of covered it all. But before that, I wanted to do a bit of a follow-up to a video I released last week about input and output goals. And in that video, we got into the pitfalls of setting goals based on the results you want instead of the work you can put in. Today, we're going to hammer that home a bit like we always do. And I'm going to remind you that you've got to commit to the process. So at one point in my interview with Damien, he says that for a lot of his career, he has made doing the work the actual goal. Now, remember, your input is the only thing that you can control in your career. You'll never be able to control whether someone connects with your music or wants to collaborate with you, and you'll never be able to control charts and accolades. You can only control the work. So you have to break down the future you want into the most basic processes that will best set you up to create that future. Create is a great word to use there because only you can create the future and the career that you want. You're never going to get it or have it. It's never going to be given to you. So how do you create it? Well, you do the work. And if this is sounding repetitive, I'm sorry, but this is the point. We got to hammer this home. You have to commit to the processes that you believe will take you there. You commit to processes in other aspects of your life without question. Here's a couple examples. If you go to the doctor and they say, take one pill with food for five days and you'll feel better, you take the pills and you feel better. If you've ever had a job that offered retirement benefits or opened your own retirement account, then you've committed to the idea that every paycheck you give a little bit of money to some mystery bank person. And when you turn 65, you get more money back. Or what about sports? If you've played sports, you've likely endured some brutal practices and training sessions so that you could step out on the field or court with your team and all be at peak performance. So why not do this with your career? Why not commit to the process? It works in other aspects of your life. It'll work here too. It's really just two simple steps. First, you have to identify the processes that will stack the deck in the favor of the future self that you want to become. And second, 
execute on those processes and put the work in every single day. Believe that they will help you create the career that you want and never falter. Don't be defeated when it seems like something isn't working because progress is slow and subtle. A lot of times you won't even realize it happened until you get to the end and you look back. Today's guest is 10-time Grammy-nominated producer and mixer Damian Taylor. This is Damian's second time on the podcast. His first appearance was way back in episode two. So if you want to learn more about his full story, definitely check that episode out. To uh, bring anybody that missed that one up to speed, Damien's work includes credits such as Bamba Estereo, Lido Pimienta, The Killers, Bjork, Odette, The Prodigy, and Uncle. He's also the founder of The Complete Producer Network, an online hub for people all over the world who are dedicated to improving their ability to create and share extraordinary music. So without further ado, welcome to the show again, Damien Taylor. What's up, man? Welcome to season three. Season three, right? Who'd have thunk it? Back in the day? Yeah. I, I I remember when I was a lad and Progressions was just two episodes old. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So thanks for having me back. Congratulations on everything you've done. Oh, thanks. In the meantime, it's been so cool just seeing the conversations around Progressions online, whether that's on Twitch streams or, you know, through the Complete Producer Network and stuff. So I want to kick this one off by making you thoroughly uncomfortable by massively bigging you up for being so consistent walking the walk and talking the talk and and providing such a great resource for everyone in music production. Well, we'll edit that. We'll put that at the end or something. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just, I figured you were, I think, the first or the second interview I ever did. So I was like, we got to do this again. It'll be a different vibe the second time. So, but we're not going to do the same stuff. We're going to talk about all new stuff. So make sure if this is your first time listening to the show, you go back and listen to Damien on episode two. So since you're a returning guest... We get to do a fun thing, which is we get to review your biggest goal from the end uh-huh. of last episode. I don't even know if you remember what it is. I've got it written down here. I think I was talking about building out all the educational stuff on Complete Producer Network. That is exactly, yeah. You said that you wanted it to become a platform you could formally educate people from and uh, authentically connect with people. So obviously, I know that a lot of that has happened, but how do you feel about it? Oh, goodness gracious. Like, I'm ecstatic with what's happened so far. It's been amazing, especially now that we're about a year and a half, couple of years in since the first formal program went up, just to see people now who have gone through the few things I've offered, like seeing the tangible difference in their careers. There's people like, you remember Deganta, who's over in Hyderabad? He's like, hey, I can't turn up to the mastermind calls anymore because I'm too busy. Like, but it's, you know, he's <laughs> been very generous just saying it's like he's applied everything he's learned. That's been just really amazing. And whether we're talking, you know, people who are trying to their, find their own feet, create and release their own music, who are now, you know, putting out literally their first EP after years of not being able to do it, or people who are, you know, we've had like Grammy-winning engineers in there who have gone from a day and a half to half a day on a mix, and they're getting better results and spending more time with their family. But I'm always looking at what could be better, and I'm sure you're very familiar with this one, Travis. And probably all of your listeners are every piece of progress you make reveals the next thing that you want to do. So, you know, I'm currently still actually in the beta phase of the mix accelerator process. And for your listeners, that's on the surface of it, it's a mixing course. But fundamentally, I wanted to create something which could help people ensure that their vision and creativity was driving their mixes, not that a struggle with their equipment was driving their mixes. But in the big picture, it's literally distilling everything I've learned and discovered about mixing and running a business around mixing into a single program. So I just decided, hey, let's put literally everything I could ever teach you about mixing into one package, even though it's the center of it is, is that journey that's about putting your vision front and center. There's all this bonus stuff. So I've been building that out all year, and I'm still building it out, but the people who are in there seem to be enjoying it. So yeah, so lots more still to do, 
But I'm sure, you know, the kind of conversations we have on progressions, it starts to get like, what's the structure around it? Um, you know, so I have Leah and Rosfi on my team helping it happen and kind of feel like I'm finishing every day just noticing what I would like to do next and wishing that could happen. And then every now and then going like, oh, yeah, and we got to make a record in here. So I am still <laughs> making <laughs> records in the middle of it all. So, yeah, it's been a great, great challenge and a great learning process. But, yeah, still a long way to go. That's awesome. So do you like to break it up? complete producer network day, mixed day or production day, or, or are you going back and forth like midday on sides of the brain? That's a really, really good question. And in many ways, I'm still grappling with that. I feel like when we last talked, Travis, I was still very much in the general routine I had that worked amazing for just doing music. And I think I was doing some Twitch streaming and stuff. But what I've found over the last couple of years is I've gone like every day is discovering the things I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's what every day should be. Every day should be, yeah. So with music production, it's been a bit like, you know, you're learning things, it's refining, it's a really, really clear goal. And so now it's almost like, oh my God, if I could build this one aspect of it, if I could build a scalable system that can run processes for my team, that would be amazing. And then you start doing that and you go, oh my God, well, actually, if I could just rebuild the entire like email thing so when people sign up it really it's a clear path and so the simple answer is i'm i'm just kind of i don't want to say winging it but i'm responding to what seems to be most present and the deepest i've been able to go reliably is just knowing what the next focal point is still if i'm doing a mix or doing a production with someone then i'll tend to want to just focus on that and really immerse myself in it. So I find splitting focus through the day, it's like you don't quite get deep enough in either. Yeah. So it tends to be when I accept a, a production or mixing project, then I just like go all in to get it out the door, then try to clear up some more space. So also I've really narrowed my um, priorities or, or my criteria for accepting a project as well. So I'm trying to accept less projects that I love more to create more time to keep building out Complete Producer Network. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, Maybe you have some advice on this. I have a hard time switching brains. Like I like to do podcast interviews in the beginning of the day, like we are, or the end of the day, but so many people choose lunch. So I'm like yeah. midway through a mix and then jump into the podcast head and I come out like hazy after the interview and it's a bummer. <laughs> it's tough, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it sounds like we're really dealing with the same challenge. And, and I found when I was doing three times a week on Twitch, I'd stream first thing in the morning and really enjoy it. But my God, like just brain fried. You yeah. know what I mean? Really having to think so, I mean, really just thinking so clearly and intensely the whole time, trying to communicate while running a bunch of tech stuff is quite intense. So yeah, I find that context switching is a challenge. And I do think that's why I've leaned more towards let me just try and run this one thing as hard as I can and until it's done. Total deep work vibes, which uh, we got into on our first episode. You're going to love this. I'm actually rereading it right now. Are you? Because, <laughs> 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 I mean, this is the thing, right? It, no matter how much you think you have a handle on how things are going to happen, the world has other plans or your favorite client has some revisions and you want to turn it around really quickly or, you know, there's always just stuff coming up. Your sweet baby girl um, needs some help or whatever. So, yeah, so I think it's this interesting thing of trying to be a lot more responsive to what's going on. But, yeah, I, I feel like I don't have as much certainty right now about how my day goes as I did a couple of years ago when, in a way, the output was so clear and so simple. It was like, hey, go to the studio, do amazing work in the studio, get out of the studio. Now it's a little bit more like what's the best way to 
learn a bunch of stuff, write a bunch of stuff, design a bunch of stuff, figure out a whole bunch of new tech, and then jump back into the studio and still deliver on the same level. Have you found that like learning all this new stuff, learning the new tech, the video stuff, the Twitch streaming, the course building, have you found pieces of that come into your production projects and your mix projects now and the way you approach those things? Yeah, I mean, this is going to sound weird. In a way, like, yes, I think the biggest thing I've learned is just thinking about this exact moment in human history and how culture is shared and how knowledge is shared. And I'm really, really fascinated right now in the landscape for anyone creating and releasing music, whether they're behind the scenes or an artist. I feel like it's such a different time compared to where when we started. And in a way, the opportunities are bigger than they ever have been. But to be able to make the most of those, you have to learn more. And you have to think much more like an entrepreneur, like the CEO of your own business. Yeah. And you really need to be able to put something in place that's going to help you do more in every single aspect of what you do. So I think it definitely encourages a level of critical thinking. It encourages a level of you have to be so clear on your vision, even if you don't know exactly how to get there. Like like my vision for how Complete Producer Network, the experience for all the people who come through there, who come through the programs for how that fits together with where I want to go as a music producer, where I want to go as a collaborator. I'm really excited about all that and they fit together really well. And this is that kind of, you're in the middle of the river just paddling like mad trying to pull these pieces together so that you can land safely on the other shore, so to speak. But in terms of when it comes back into the studio, honestly, like, it's just, I'm going to say it's like such a relief to just be like, oh, all I need to do is just listen to this music and respond to it. So I think it's really helped me just love music even more and enjoy the process of making a record or the process of connecting with an artist and actually understanding how simple and pure that relationship or that action is. And I think because I've focused so much on trying to learn how to communicate the value of, say, the programs that I'm sharing with people, like from firsthand experience, I really understand the impact that they make with me, and I've seen that replicated with other people. And so that kind of thinking, like, what's the end result? What's this actually going to do for you? Bringing that thinking back into how I'm working with artists has really helped a lot because I'm thinking about the big picture of where they're going as an artist, not just which compressor I'm using. I'm really thinking about supporting them on their their big trajectory. Yeah. Something about the macro picture of things kind of makes the smaller decisions easier, I think. Yes. I came, yeah. oh my God, you're going to love this, right, Travis? We nerd out on like thought models, right? Have you heard of, I think it's called um, Hendrix Principle, I-C-K-S? I don't think so. Okay, progressions listeners, you want to you want get out your notepad cuz you're going to want to remember <laughs> this one. It's basically that we will apply the same or more weight or intensity to choices that basically have minimal differences between them as we will to choices that are dramatically different. So for example, you could say, okay, are you and your family going to stay in Los Angeles or are you going to move to New Zealand? Right, pretty profound like choice with Big ramifications. Decision. Yeah, but people will put that much energy and attention into, am I going to use the Universal Audio 1176 or the Waves 1176? And then we'll get obsessed for days and days and days. Oh my God, I want to buy an 1176, but do I buy this revision and that revision? Yes, they're different, but 
in the big picture, how much of an impact will they make? And I think just talking specifically engineering here, I think Dave Pensato said this thing about like 10 or 12 years ago that changed my life, which is if you're mixing on a Neve, if it's not as bright as an SSL, inherently, you'll just brighten up your mix. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you, the actions you will take will compensate for the equipment you're using, Yeah. in other words. Yeah, so Hendrick's principle is basically that we wind up wasting so much mental energy on choosing between options that aren't that different and won't have that much of a compounding different impact on our end result. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So can I bring this into like a practical, you're on a session situation? And I think having the confidence or, or the, the clarity of thinking that I have now on sessions is like, here's a little story. I was in Mexico City with Esquay, who's a Canadian artist. We become super good friends. We did a whole album down there. We both wanted to go somewhere different after the whole lockdown and really get immersed in a vibe and kind of bring out her story. And sessions had been going great. And we'd always talked about making a weed song. And her management was like, you got to make a weed song. Like, she's a massive toker. Everyone, we're in California. It's legal. It's all good here. But it was, you know, the, yeah, the, there's a lot of stuff she wanted to say. So it actually, it, you know, had political and personal implications and stuff like that and, and really part of her story. And so we were always waiting for, we kind of joke about it. Like, are we doing the weed song today? It's like, no, no, we're not ready. So anyway, this one day, you know, two or three days left of our sessions, we were like, is tonight the night we do the weed song? And it was like, yeah. And a few years ago, I would have immediately sat down at the computer and started programming. And in this context, it was, I still talked to her for another two hours and just like kept sifting around and sifting around and sifting around until we could find the right angle. And we agreed, okay, it has to be based on a sample. And so then I just talked to her about all the records she listened to forever and ever. And it was, it was just really interesting going like, we're not going to go in and start choosing hi-hats. I'm going to keep engaging her on what are the core big elements that are going to tell this story as strongly as possible or, or that will provide the context for her to tell a story as strongly as possible. And, and, and it's a weed banger. It comes out next year, but on 420... Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I just want to say like, yeah, the difference between now and a number of years ago is I would have always felt immediately sit down in front of your equipment, start making technical choices instead yeah. of let's stay zoomed right out until the big picture really comes into view. And then you use all your gear and your technology to bring that vision to life. Yeah. Hendrick's principle. Yeah. We'll put links to a complicated <laughs> article about it. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, that cool. basically segues into almost everything I have in my notes. So I don't even know. I don't even know what to choose next. Something I do want to highlight that I think uh, is a common thread between your coursework and some of the questions that I have. It's when you said listen to the music and respond to it. I think that's like the most important thing you can take away so far here is that's the only thing that matters. Hell yeah. I was obsessing over a Hendrix principle this morning, actually doing a mix recall. And I put like a little bit of distortion on the kick and I sent the mix to the artist and then I sent an alt and I was like, hey, this is very subtle and potentially pointless, but do you like this better? And the response was like, I don't really hear a difference. Which one do you like? And I was like, damn it. I can't believe I wasted time, <laughs> I wasted time on it. But let's go somewhere that we haven't somehow have not gone in this show. And you were kind of touching on it a little bit, talking about the Isquay record. Where does pre-production come into your production process like how important is it some people don't really do it they just show up like you said and start making beats other people it's like building a relationship for like weeks and weeks and weeks describe your process before we get to the studio 
Well, it depends with every artist, so you got to figure out where they're at. But for me, I want to do everything possible to get myself on that artist's wavelength, whether we're talking like a full-on production or even a mix. So I basically invite my artists to start influencing me as much as possible. So I love to chat, like you can probably figure this out, right? So we'll definitely have some big Zoom calls, and, and I really want to kind of extract as much as I can about the way that they think about the world, think about their music, their goals for what we'll be working on together, but just really get a feel for who they are as a person. And especially there's this thing about the way they see the world or the way they hear the world. So I really love asking a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of questions and just seeing what comes up. I think this is a critical part of the pre-pre-production is creating an environment of trust where the artist knows that I'm actually listening to them. I think it's all too common in our industry for people to not feel that their team are actually on board with what they're trying to achieve. True. Or they might not feel that the person they're working with is actually paying attention, really, that they're just going to go <laughs> do their thing. So you kind of have to figure out the person with the greatest possible chance of an overlap. So anyway, I want to really just like establish a, a very positive culture because that will pay dividends at every step down the track. And that will also lay the groundwork for you both to work from instinct as much as possible and to eliminate second guessing. It's like we can trust each other to reflect back what the music needs and without either of us getting too in our heads, if that makes sense. So a big chat. And then I really love just like getting a big playlist from artists as well. I'll listen to stuff while I'm cooking, stuff while I'm outside of the studio. And I like to have that going on for well before the work starts. And again, this is even if I'm doing a single mix for someone. I want to infuse their world into my brain. I want to let my subconscious do the work. I don't think about this too hard. If I'm working as a producer, I might take some, you know, some notes from a certain point of view before we actually start working on stuff if I'm listening through to songs. But otherwise, it's a very kind of light touch first relationship thing and then just uploading this information into my own brain and inviting my subconscious to integrate it into the way that I listen. So that say if I'm mixing straight away, I'll already have a bit of a of a, a lens that I'm listening through. And if we're going to be working together in person, that once we actually do get our time together, that we're ready to, to hit the ground running. Yeah. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Do you find that, this is just like a mixer to a mixer question, putting all that legwork in up front, obviously, you know, it increases the amount of time you spend, quote, working on a project. Do you find that projects end faster? by building that trust and having that understanding? Or do they still carry on about the same amount of time? I find that we get to the finish line more easily. Mm. Who knows about the time? Like, if I have a great trust with an artist, one mix, it might be like an immediate green light, and the next one we might do 15 revisions. But if we have that right context in which we can just evaluate and exchange ideas, that's all I really care about. So it's much more that I want them to feel when they get stuff back from me, we're talking remote mixing, that they're going to listen for what's good and they're going to feel relaxed about, oh, I'd like to hear this different. Does that make sense? I, I know that there's a lot of people out there where it's like, you get one revision. 
and then it's $200 every time I touch it. You know what I mean? I don't understand how people could do that. Right, yeah. And I think that's fine if you're all in the room and everything. That That's that's totally cool. Just so everyone knows well, a bit of a tangent, I love mixing remotely because my goal fundamentally when I'm mixing is, this is exactly what this is in the mix accelerator process, is like vision, creativity, and instinct up front. And I want no conscious brain, no second guessing. So I like having this real intense run where it's just instinct, 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 up to the point where to me it feels like an amazing record. And then I send it to an artist and it's like, is this the record you want? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and then we just dial from there. And and I've found that once I know I've really put that instinct in, I have zero stress at all about doing any changes. Whereas I've found some of the friction that you get if you're working with the mixer, or I've felt this a lot in the past, is I'm trying to pull stuff together and you haven't got to the point where it's taken shape yet. And there's someone kind of pulling it apart or trying to do something different. So you can't really get into that state where you are exploring and learning everything you need to about that mix. And so paradoxically, the person who's hired you, who's paying you, isn't getting the best result out of you. And they're more frustrated because they want to hear things different. Does that make sense? So everyone's a bit unhappy. Yeah. You know, I've done plenty of mixes fine with people in the room, but also as my speed has increased because I've eliminated a lot of the second guessing, then... It's also, you know, I might roll out of bed at seven in the morning and mix for three hours and then go hiking <laughs> for four hours. And and that doesn't work so well if someone's flown in, you know. Yeah, but my goal is like with all of my artists, no matter what we're doing, my only goal is to make a record they love. That should be the only goal. Yeah, and so it's whatever whatever it takes to get there. And luckily, I'm at a point where I tend to attract people who are kind of on my wavelength and I'm kind of on theirs. But another thing about this whole thing up front, right? Like, it's not just that it's work, but it's a huge opportunity for me. Most of the stuff I learn about music, most of the cool music I get switched onto comes through my artists. Most of the way my mind expands comes through my artists. So it's actually, I benefit a huge amount. And even if I was just literally talking to people who make cool music and then they share a playlist with me of all the stuff they're into, like, that's a ginormous win. That is true. It's very different from let me come over and and water blast your driveway. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> or move house for you. So yeah, it's it's kind of quite critical for me as well, especially now that we're working remotely so much. Yeah. To have some actual time where you get to talk about music with interesting people. That is true. It's kind of that technique of, you know, successful producers late in their career just start signing young kids. Totally. The fresh sound. Here's a follow-up question to that. You said, you know, you find that you're, you know, working with people that are on the same wavelength a lot. What do you think some of the steps are that like a younger producer or mixer can take to kind of develop that to get to the point where people come to them because of what they do, not because they will mix their record, if that makes, does that question make sense? Yeah, that's really, really, really good question. It's a deep one. <laughs> so I actually, I posted a TikTok about this. It was a young mixer who was like, hey, I've been practicing mixing for a couple of years. I think I'm really good at it, but no labels will hire me. Any advice on getting clients? And my fundamental point is that it's not about skill. It's about trust. In the early part of your career, your priority should be building trust with people. That's why traditional studio systems start with, can you empty this trash can? Can you answer the phone at one in the morning or something like that. It's a demonstration that you can handle the responsibility. And that naturally leads to you being trusted with more and more and more responsibility. 
And I think naturally, once you start getting into these situations, you will then find you'll meet more and more people. And naturally, the people who you resonate with will want to work with you more and vice versa. Now, this is where it's tricky. If you're sitting in your room on your own, only firing off emails, it's very hard to build that trust in those relationships. Yeah. So I do recommend, there's so many different career paths now, and actually I'm, I'm firing up my YouTube again, and I feel like I want to make a series of videos like if I was starting from scratch right now, what would I do? The model, if you're not in a major recording center and you can't get into a big multi-room studio, is you have to start working with your friends and literally anyone around you and just be consistently making as much as possible and trusting that this stuff compounds over time. So, you know, going back to the nubbins of your question, which is how do you find these people on your wavelength, you're going to need to hit up the people doing the things that you like. <laughs> and if that's your friends, you know, like find the friend who has similar taste. But I don't think you can overstate how important it is to work on stuff that might not immediately sit where your taste is. Because part of what you're going to learn there is how to serve the music and serve your client, serve your artist, no matter what. And how to ensure that your ability to deliver a record translates your own personal taste and your own personal ego, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that once you start working with people who, that, you know, there might be that one critical project, which could go somewhere, it might be the one that pops off you need to be ready to deliver on those. And maybe those are the ones that you like tell the whole world about. For me, the easy, it, people talk about Bjork all the time, but I got to start working with Bjork when I was 21. Same with the uncle. So I was lucky that I managed to wind up in a situation where a few artists that were aligned with what I was really into, I got to be in the room with them, but that also came from choosing to move to the other side of the world and to hit up the studio's where those things were happening. And even though those studios didn't wind up being the direct route in, I was kind of, I was in the environment and doing everything I could day in and day out to make the connections to, to make that work. But it's, this is also, you know, outreach is important, but I think, especially if you're starting really understanding that you're playing a long game, and once you have that trust, then people will be inclined to trust you with more and more responsibility. So also I got to work with some of these artists I mentioned, not as a mixer, not as a producer, to start with, even though I, you know, I've done a mix with Prodigy, I mixed a Bjork album, but that was like the Bjork album I mixed was the fourth album of hers I had a credit on. And I first went into the situation with Bjork as Guy Sigsworth's engineer. So she didn't hire me, <laughs> but I was able to do something for Guy. And then, and you naturally meet people, you know, I got into the Prodigy because I wound up doing all this stuff with Neil McClellan, who then was like, okay, Damon's indispensable. Some of the stuff Neil and I worked on was fucking atrocious. <laughs> you know, we worked on some cool records together, but we were doing like, here's a pitch for a Bacardi gin advert. And, you know, we'd be up until 5 a.m. doing that. So you build these relationships with people by helping them deliver in any situation so that, you know, the prodigy is, for Neil, is like his biggest artist ever. He's not going to trust bringing some random into that situation. So you demonstrate how you can work, and then that sets you up when these bigger projects come in to be able to land them. But I can't stress enough, if, if you want to work behind the scenes, then that's where working in teams and being able to solve problems for other people who might be more directly solving problems for an artist is huge. And if you don't want to go through that system, then just, you know, to be working directly with artists and start with the artist next door. Yeah, that's a great answer. And it was a really amazing way to sum up the big studio path that, you know, I went through that I've talked a lot of shit about 
that I say doesn't exist anymore. But there was a lot of parallel in what you said to something that another guest of mine said uh, last season, Mixer Andrew Mori. I don't know if you know Andrew, but he he talked a lot about trust and how like getting those label gigs and those higher profile, even if they're independent artists, it comes down to do they trust that you'll deliver the product that they want? Or I hate to say product, but I, I said it. <laughs> Where do you think producer comes from, by the way? <laughs> producer and product. Deliver a go. finished product, right? There you go. Yeah. But yeah, that was, that's a great, a great answer. I wanted to ask you, let's see. And actually, before we jump onto that one, mm -hmm. the other critical point for this for people to understand is that mixing is the culmination of so many steps, right? Mixing is the thing that when you look sure. on the internet, it's like, yo, you get a multiband and, and trigger your kick off your bass and blah, blah, blah. And that's how you mix. And it's like, no, you think about the amount of human hours, the investment that's gone into making a record up to that point, not just for that one song, but someone's entire career. Like handing stuff off to a mixer is a really, really, really big deal. And if you think you're just going to walk in off the street and someone's going to go, hey, here's a culmination of five years of work, go for it. That trust is critical. And it's not just that you'll be able to deliver a product. But for me, going back to your earlier question, it's so important that any team I work with understands that I'm on their side until they are like ecstatic with it. So anyway, that that's it's just a really important thing for people to understand when you're sitting on your own in your room. Just going, why can't I mix people's stuff? Just really think about it from their point of view. Yeah, well, it, you you sparked the idea in me that there's a lot of producers, you know, producers that came up as engineers, they want to mix. You mix your productions. Brendan O'Brien comes to mind. He mixes pretty much everything that he produces. There's so many, so many producers that don't want to hand it off because you're right, it is a huge ask to take all of that work that a whole team has done and then just pass a hard drive over to somebody who is just going to listen to it for the first time tomorrow, you know, without the trust, then why would you ever do that? Why would you pass it off to anybody? So, yeah. And that's also why it's like what, there's like 10 or 15 kind of big mixers in the world at any one time. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, and that also becomes an easy choice for the labels. I don't mean this in any kind of a disparaging way, but it's just like, you know, you phone up this person, you're going to get the result, especially once that starts translating into radio plays. You know, I've been in a situation where, you know, a, a mix I did for an artist I produced on an album, the artist preferred my mix and the label went with big name mixers mix because they know it works on the radio. They trust. Guaranteed. Yeah. And that was fine. You know, it's, it's no big deal. I mix the rest of the record and everything, but... So, and th that's where it just gets so interesting. There's so many more factors than just how good a mixer are you, or even how good a producer are you, or how good an engineer are you. There's the whole cornucopia kaleidoscope of other factors going into it. And that's where I think as well, just un like having patience and trusting the process and reaching out to people. There's even just like, is it the right time? And I've told the story yeah. plenty of times about how I worked with Bjork a little bit on Vespertine with Guy Sigsworth and then kept in touch with their management for six years. And six years later, it was the right time. So, Really, I think everyone understanding that you never know where someone else is in their cycle. And yeah, just creating a good enough impression and trusting that if the planets are going to line up, then they will. It's a little bit, you know, I hate to say it, it's a, there's a little bit of luck involved when it comes to timing. When it comes to timing, there's a little bit of luck. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I think if we put this into progressions speak, there are things you can control and there's things you can't control. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we know what your output goal is, but all you can do is your input goal, your input activity. Well, that segues nicely into a question. So since we're talking 
input goals, output goals, which most of the people listening to this podcast are familiar with. There was uh, a conversation in your mastermind group for anybody that's unfamiliar. Damien has a online studio mastermind hang that he does for people on the Complete Producer Network. And so the other day we were talking about how you get satisfaction out of doing the work, not out of the outcome, not the Grammy nom, not the album release, whatever. And that doing the work is the actual goal. And so I want to talk about that. But I was trying to get to the bottom of a question on that chat. And I I think I worded my question wrong. So now that I'm in charge of asking questions, (laughs) I get to go again. What was the first time you realized that making the work the goal was taking you further than making the outcome the goal? I think it was, I mean, I was just so obsessed with getting in the studio that just being in the studio was reward enough. I mean, I especially remember the first time I got into a session at Strong Room, Strong Room Studio 2, there, no, it was 3 is their SSL room. And I first worked with Guy Sigsworth in this little studio in Brixton where I was working in this guy's living room. And then we went into Studio 3, first time I'd ever seen an SSL. So for listeners of background, like I was a teenager in New Zealand. I got obsessed with records in New Zealand. And this was before the internet. And I did a part-time audio engineering degree in New Zealand and, and moved to London when I was 19. And I spent like, I was just like sending letters to Strong Room like all the time, desperate to get in as an assistant. And I think it's important to paint the picture of pre-internet knowledge dispersion. Like, you know, in my, uh, you know, I did a the audio engineering degree. We were working on a Mackie, but it was like, when you truly arrive as an engineer, you will see an SSL. And if you ever sit in front of an SSL, then you'll know that you've arrived as an engineer. And I was like, whoa, SSLs are like, you know, like dragons or something like that. Like mythical, mythical, mythical objects. So the first time I got to walk into Strong Room, the studio I was super obsessed with, I was an engineering, but there was an SSL there. Tristan, I think Norwood was his name, was engineering. And this was a Talvin Singh remix. Talvin Singh was like a huge hero with Guy Sigsworth. And that was just like, just being there was like insane. I think the first time I really started to think about outputs was um, there's a band called South who are dear friends to this day. They were part of the Uncle and Moax crew. And there's a whole team of us working on their debut album. And I was like, once this record comes out, then like my career is going to be like off the charts. I'm going to be like so in demand. This is gonna, like one of the best records ever. And that was kind of my first like proper, proper, proper album project as well. So I was doing Pro Tools on that big, big team of us working. And by the way, Pro Tools at that point was, it's a very, very mystical, multifaceted term, which we can unpack at another point. And the record came out seven out of 10, didn't really do much. And I was kind of pretty devastated in a way, because I thought this one thing now is going to change everything. So that then also, you know, by around that time, Actually, while I was on that project, the the parent company of the label, they got like literally months behind on paying invoices. So suddenly it was like, oh, I actually need to be making money as well. And then you get into the like, how do I get in gigs? I need to pay my rent <laughs> cycle. But again, at some point I did figure out like you just have to consistently turn up and work and then money just shows up somehow and you'll have natural peaks and troughs of money showing up. That, you know, this is when we get into just like the the realities of being freelance. Some clients are amazing payers. Some are terrible payers. Sometimes you go through weeks or months or years where it seems like you can't get a single moment to yourself. And then you suddenly have three months with nothing going on and you think your career is over. So 
But actually just sitting down and doing the work itself is almost the simplest part of what we do on so many levels, especially once you start doing it so much that it becomes second nature. That's interesting. I never made that connection that you made because, I mean, I feel the same way. Like getting in the studio was the only thing that mattered to me, right? But I never put the idea of the work being the more important part. Like I was always doing the work thinking like I'm going to get a promotion. I'm going to become an assistant. Then an engineer is going to pick me up. Then a producer is going to pick me up and blah, blah, blah. I was always thinking about what was about to happen while fully like loving every second of the studio. To, and it wasn't until recently in the last year that I really kind of thought this whole outcome thing, it doesn't matter. And a lot of it, you mentioned, I think you said it was an uncle record. You thought that credit was going to change everything for you. And I've had that happen mm-hmm. multiple times for me where I'm like, hey, this is a huge record. Hey, this just went number one. Everything's going to be different. And it's never different. If you ever think it's going to be different and you're listening to this podcast, just toss that out because it's probably not going to be different. You know, just keep doing the work. I had a Latin Grammy, Grammy nomination for album of the year. This last year? Yeah, a few weeks ago. Um, Rosalia won it, who thoroughly deserves it, by the way. That album is insane. But yeah, it's, it's when you get in, you mentioned, you know, the Grammy noms and stuff, and they're great, but it tends to be like, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> you got a nomination. But the point is, like, album of the year, you pick up your phone waiting for it to just be like, kind of thing. Yeah. But this is where it gets interesting as well, because sometimes six years later, someone says that record you did six years ago was one of my favorite records or 10 years later me and all my friends were obsessed with that album that's why i want to work with you so things will bear fruit but when we look at it as like i've just put a quarter into the machine and i want my soda to pop out the bottom right it doesn't quite work that way but even on the you know on the like dealing with a lot of clients and accounts receivable and stuff ultimately what we can do is turn up and do the work you know, I have management. I've had periods where I haven't had management, but either way, I've figured out just you get up, do the work, and then the kind of the chasing the money and stuff like that. And by chasing the money, everyone, I mean literally sending the emails to say, can you please put the money in my bank account? I don't mean like <laughs> making creative decisions based on where you think you'll get payback. That does tend to sort itself out. Some people pay early, some people pay late, you know. It happens. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you will have noticed this, Travis, from all the people you've spoken to, If our only priority was profit, we would have gone into like investment banking or run a hedge fund or something like that. Not to say that there isn't money in music and that we shouldn't be well compensated for it. That's a whole other conversation. But um, I've gone through a very actually challenging financial moment recently on the back of being ill and traveling a lot. And I remember explaining to my mom, who was desperately worried about it, like, mom, you would not believe how cool my life has been. Do you know what I mean? And, And the experiences I've had directly from making records are the kinds of things that very few people get to do, the kinds of relationships you get to do as a result of this, for me, are priceless, especially once you start, you know, meeting with and working with people that you really respect, that you really admire, who open your mind to so many new things. Like, yeah. But having said all that, do not fall for that management or label thing where they're like, hey, it's going to be great exposure. (laughs) (laughs) We'll pay you an exposure or whatever. It's like, that's cool. This is going to be huge for you. Yeah, yeah. I had someone try to pull that on me a a few years ago who I've known since like the start of my career. And I was like, remember that time you like drove me to the airport to drop me off for a session? That's when it would have been cool 20 years ago. Like now it's like, (laughs) (laughs) meh. It's nice, but it's not going to make that much of a difference. 
Now, there's another side to this, Travis, that I think is important to talk about with your listeners, which is do the work once you are happy that the conditions for that work are correct. And that wasn't a lesson that I learned until quite a lot later on. And by that, I mean, understand your own criteria around what do I need to have in place for this to be a green light for me. And I have Mm -hmm. that really clear with my management now as well. So it's basic stuff like, is the deal agreed? Has your 50% commencement check hit? (laughs) You know, a few basic parameters so that you know, once you've committed to this, once you start the work, like you can completely invest yourself in it and feel like it's the right thing to do. And Travis, you mentioned my online studio and the conversations we have in there. And we've had so many conversations, especially with people building their careers around how do I price for what I'm doing? How do I negotiate a deal? And the fundamental rule for me is make sure that you are in a situation where you can work on it with zero resentment. That's a great way to think about it. Yeah. Last thing you want to do is be working on a project and being like, well, they're not paying me enough. Well, this, these terms are shitty. Well, I'm working too, the hours are too long. You know what I mean? So whatever it is, having those clear parameters around it so that you can just invest yourself in it fully. So there's a bit of work in setting it up. That's work that is worth doing. And it's really important to have clarity yourself on what those criteria are. Important to say as well that you'll understand if you're working for a major label, there's going to be some random accounting department somewhere that has nothing to do with your creative team, and they will do everything in their power to pay you as late as possible. And just understand that going in. Conversely, if you're working with an indie or like a brand new artist, maybe they're handling all the decisions themselves, and that's great because you can have a conversation about every single decision that needs to be made. So do the work once you're happy that the parameters are there for you to do it. That's a really solid point. I think a lot of people... Even people that have been doing this for a long time, they never they never really agree to that with themselves. They're like, okay, well, I'll do this because I kind of like you and it's like close enough. And then, you, yeah, resentment. You always have that at the end of the project when you're, you know, you're printing the final stems and you're just like, God, was this worth it? Yes. They were so, you know, like, and you never want that. But I wanted yeah. to jump back. You mentioned like a while ago, chasing the money and like, saying how wonderful of a life you had had your mother and all the experiences that you've had because we're doing music we're all doing what we love it's super challenging but there are so many people that don't do what they love like they don't get joy and fulfillment out of their job they are only there for that friday deposit to come through and it's super sad but it's also it's super hard to chase your passion and so here's a kind of a question or a thought because you've been doing this longer than i have and we've both probably experienced this a bit, personal sacrifice that maybe you've made or others have made that you've seen in your career, first career growth. Do you think that like somebody who's 22 needs to go as far as maybe some of us and our peers have have gone when it comes to personal relationships or health relationships? Is it like, do we have to? Well, maybe Travis, you could illustrate for your listeners how far we're talking here. I mean, like, here, yeah, I didn't really date for like 12 years. All I did was work. I dropped everything. Somebody called. I went to a studio. I came home. I did mixed recalls. I didn't go to people's birthdays. I still had friends, but most of them were in the studio. They were doing the exact same thing. I had no friends outside of the studio. The people didn't understand what we were doing. So I'm talking about that level of like just absolute disregard for your personal anything. Health aside, I've had knee problems and elbow problems. I didn't exercise. Not even to go down that road, but that's what kind of what I'm talking about. 
Okay, I'm with you. Yeah, I do look back on the fact that I missed my grandmother's funeral, my beloved grandmother's funeral, to attend a session where we recorded Tommy Lee of Motley Crue. In hindsight, I think I'd go to my grandma's funeral next time. So here's, like, you mentioned, like, in your 20s versus later in life. And I don't know how you would feel about this, Travis, but when I was in my 20s, like, all I wanted to do was be in the studio. And in a way, one of the advantages you have at that stage of your life is that you can kind of brute force your way through a lot of situations that actually require some nuance. So, oh, I've been double booked. Hey, no problem. I'll work all day on this one and then work all night on the next one, then work all day on the next one and then work all night on the next one. Yeah. Now that is completely unsustainable. And, um, you know, I had three complete burnouts in my 20s, whereas I haven't had that since. If you're coming up through studio culture as well, especially when we're talking about we have booked this studio for a few days, like that's quite a different situation to the one that you and I are in now where we have our own personal studios and we can do the work as we need to. This also depends which path you're choosing. So if you are choosing, a, I'm going to be an independent engineer producer from the get-go, working with my own gear from my own house or my own place, building stuff up, starting with my friends versus I'm going to go through a more traditional apprenticeship intern studio route. The main reason I stopped working with Bjork was because I understood when I worked with her, I had to be ready to get on a plane at a moment's notice and fly anywhere in the world. It was like being in in Navy SEALs or whatever. Like I was literally (laughs) standing in my yard with my partner at the time and our little baby girl, I was like digging out some vegetables and my phone went, I was living on the west coast of Canada at the time, my phone went and was like, Bjork needs you in Lithuania, your flight leaves in two hours. And I was like, okay. And at that time, I loved that. Like it was an amazing adventure. And then at some point you go, that's not the adventure for me anymore. So I think getting clear on the fact that your own priorities will change over time Mm, Also, we could say that at the start of your career, the more, literally the more hours that you can spend in the studio, the better you're trying to get in that rep situation. You know, there's a whole 10,000 hours trope and a lot of nuance around that. Like, well, if you do it effectively, you could learn something in 2,000 hours that might have taken someone else 20,000 hours. So there's a question about how effectively we, we work it. But I think one of the things you and I talk about a lot, and I'm sure it comes up a lot on progressions, is understanding that one hour of work does not equal one unit of results. And I think that's the biggest the biggest fallacy that's perpetuated in our industry. <laughs> I don't know how much things have changed now in, in the larger studio situation is kind of the grind culture. I don't know about you, but I wore like my absolute exhaustion as like a badge of honor. Oh, yeah, me too. I had a callus the size of a golf ball on my wrist from computering on an untreated pine desk. It was like, you know, skateboarders when they have like scars on their knees. It was like, yeah, man, I'm putting my body on the line for Pro Tools kind of thing. But yeah, once it really became clear, this is what we're talking about earlier, right? Understanding the bigger picture, what you're working towards artistically and career-wise, both with an artist and for yourself, suddenly changes your calculus about where you put your time and energy. Yeah. And I would be fascinated, actually, if I could do some kind of a quantum leap-esque, like morph myself into a, another body starting a career, not knowing anything I know technically, but knowing what I know wisdom-wise. And I'd be really interested to try building a career with a very specific strategy, which would be quite different to a in-the-studio strategy. But I really do think it comes down to, like, you, you, you mentioned a point in there, right? We have no social life. But if I think about the times I was working 
on sessions with a ton of people in big studios, those were the best social times of my life. Same here. You know, yeah, it's like it's like people in sports teams or please take this with a ginormous pinch of salt, everyone, but like, you know, troops at war. It's like you are you are you're so close to these people either side of you and you're in it together. That's what I mean. Not saying the stresses of getting a sick kick drum sound or anything like a soldier in combat. Slightly different stakes there, but in terms of being with people on a shared mission, and I think that's one of the most fulfilling things you can do as a human being, is be working tightly with a group of people. And to this day, the people that I went through all that with are still pretty much my closest friends. If I do some real talk, like I love living in LA, but I'm mostly being a hermit. So I've hardly made any friends in LA because I'm mostly working on my own, which is kind of trippy. Whereas, you know, one year in London, it's like that's, you know, tens of people that are ride or die. Yeah. Because we were just in the room till 5 a.m. on it together. You really answered that question in a good way because any of the choices I made, I don't regret. You look back and you think maybe there was a better way to do that. But no, but it was fun. You're right. Like, I enjoyed it. Like, if that's what you want to do, I mean... This is your opportunity to chase that thing. You're young. You can do that. I guess it's more priorities change and shift. And it's not that it was like a mistake or or that you have to do that or don't have to do that. Like you might have just heard everything Damien said and feel super inspired to go work in a studio right now. You may also want to never work in a studio. And I guess maybe that's the point of the question there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I remember like when I was still at Audio Engineering College and I had a, a good friend and we'd mess around with music in New Zealand and, you know, we were both total night owls. So I was, my Audio Engineering College classes were in the evening. I did that two nights a week. The other five nights of the week I was waiting on tables. So I was, I'd get up at noon and then be up till 5 a.m. every night. And sometimes I'd be over at his place and we kind of, you know, just be hanging out. And I remember driving back and seeing people get up to go to the office. I've done that. Yeah, and I was just like, that just looks like a fate worse than death to me. Imagine having to turn up day in and day out at the same time in that way. That seemed crazy. I worked all night once, uh, well, multiple times. But this day was LA Marathon Day. And for anybody that lives in LA, you know that like the roads go to shit like everything is closed and the marathon starts at like four in the morning they start closing roads at like four or five i couldn't get home i left capital and i like drove south and i tried to cross like fine <laughs> and i couldn't get I, I ended up like on the route for a second and then they made me get off anyway i just thought of that when you said driving home and in, in traffic i was funny like, isn't it took me 30 minutes to go like a mile and a half because i had to go like around the <laughs> marathon <laughs> Five o'clock in the morning. Can I bring up one other point on that? And actually, um, yeah. a great book to read. So there's this guy called Tony Fidel, who is known as the inventor of the iPod. I think he's, I'm not sure if he was CTO, or he ran the division at Apple that made iPod. Okay. And the iPhone, basically. Really fascinating career, but he just put out a book called Build, which I recommend everyone reads. It's, it's totally about building and growing a technology startup. After he left Apple, he also founded Nest, you know, the home thermostat kind of smart home company. So he single-handedly, well, he was one of the most significant players in, in establishing the smart home. But that book is like, it is so intensely, densely packed with information, but most of it is about how you go through different stages of growth. And he uses a specific word, breakpoints. That in the growth of a company, there's specific breakpoints where what worked up to that size will no longer work if you want to grow further. I mean, I only came across it explicitly stated in his book this year, but I wish I had thought about that or thought about things that way later on in my 20s because we tend yeah. to think there's only one way of working. 
And Travis, actually, everyone on one of the online studio discussions, Travis, you mentioned seeing these engineers who were much older and were really cynical and who were still living that same model. And that that brought up for you, you just said you needed to think about your own happiness suddenly. So I think understanding that as we grow, as our priorities change, we need to be really open to hearing those voices. And if speaking directly to you right now, if you're a listener of Progressions and you've been working in studios around the clock and you're getting really depressed and you start to dread opening the door of the studio. Mm. Have you ever had that, Travis? Like you walk in and you just go like, oh my God, like you want to hide in the closet or something like that. Almost, Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've hit that a couple of times. I just could not imagine walking up the stairs to the studio and I literally hid in a friend's session the whole day and called in sick just because you're overworked and you're exhausted. So you need to, funnily enough, this ties in with our conversation about mixing and stuff. You need to develop that conversation with your inner voice. Yeah. And you need to be able to listen to it. And then going back to what we were saying about understanding the terms of your work and being comfortable with that and understanding what it's going to cost you on the other side. So this is your question about, you know, what what's the implications on your social life for the rest of your life? So having a clear sense of what it will cost you and if it's worth that investment. But yeah, critically, Tony's whole description of how you go from there are like three of us in a room working together up to we have many thousands of employees in branches around the world. And here are the strategic and thinking shifts we need to make. And he also has this really amazing description of going from being an what in the tech world they call an individual contributor. So this is like you are a person who has a skill and you are hired to perform that skill. So in tech world, that might be coder or it might be a you know, user interface designer. And at some point, if you're good enough, then you're going to need to run a team. And that's when you need to completely shift how you think about what you're doing and actually the activities that you're doing day to day. So you might have been a star coder and suddenly now you're managing people. Yeah. which means that you might do almost no code. In many ways, I feel like I have that break point that I still need to go beyond in my own career. Like I've got so good at every single detail of production and I haven't handed those off to people. Maybe my systems are so damn efficient. I have all these reasons I haven't done it. I do so many different kinds of records. I, you know, It's very unpredictable, my work. But yeah, it, it's a great book just to think about that through a different lens. And I think it's really beneficial for us in the music industry to be reading and thinking about how different industries work and how they challenges that are really obvious to them that might not be so obvious to us. Yeah, that breakpoint term, I mean that kind of sums up a lot of what we've touched on. Talk about like my breaking point at like early 30s. It's like what was working for me in my career, my personal life up to that point no longer it didn't work. Something had to change. Or you know, to talk about like chasing the money and like feeling comfortable with like what you're getting paid for what you're putting in. There's a like, there's a breaking point, like what you got paid to work when you're 18, that's not going to work when you're 25. So that that's, that's a really interesting term. I'm definitely gonna check that book out. Yeah, it's a good one. So I want to do one kind of technical tip before we get into a few other career closing thoughts. But um, I, I like to ask people who are mixers or engineers, if they do anything like super weird maybe they stumbled on on accident is there anything that you do that you think is do you have a bizarre mix tip yes (laughs) and i actually articulated this a couple of nights ago on our online studio call and it is i've discovered in almost 99 percent of my mixes now right before i print i am changing the bass level by as much as like six to nine db up or down uh either way (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> which kind of is counter to the the main mixing like the bedrock of accumulated knowledge is solo your kick and get that to minus six and then put your bass in and then it should be at minus four and then build everything on top of that once the bottom end is dialed in i do things in a bit of a weird order personally i don't like putting a mix bus on until quite late and at the end of my mixes i'll often be seeing how much i can get out of pushing into those into some mix bussy stuff and some of it changes stuff a little bit drastically but i kind of like it it's almost like a little a kind of the lens shifts and then you reevaluate a little bit what you're doing but some of those processes just add in a ton of low end so i'll just you know and and i do 98% of my work on avantones on small speakers so i'm very happy with the coherence of how the entire frequency range works but i'll sometimes just do that check and sometimes there's like a big move and this is a weird thing because it's going through a bunch of buses i might be moving the fader by like you know 6db or something like that but the actual perceived change at the end of that is a lot smaller yeah yeah that's interesting i find uh i find myself turning the bass down instead of the vocal up sometimes like towards the end I don't yes know. absolutely you know what i yeah. mean you're just like ah, oh, the vocal's just not there and bass comes down a couple db and you're like hmm, that's better yeah, exactly. Like we open it up and stuff like that. And I think also once like, yeah, the other elements of your mix get in, you're getting the chunkiness from other spots sometimes. So yeah. yeah. It can just be like easing back on stuff might ease back on a on a bunch of other processing, help things feel more open, but you still got a totally great low end. There is something about like making a drastic change like right at the end that's like sometimes makes you feel like you really nailed it and other times makes it feel like you didn't you just didn't get it that day. I don't know. I it goes both ways for me. If I start doing something drastic right before I print, it's either like a hundred times better or um, I just save, quit, and come back the next morning. So, Well, we both learned that from Frank Titas, right? And the first project I did with him mixing, if someone wanted something louder, he'd say like, oh, let's turn it up 6 dB yeah. and just see what happens. So it was like, okay, if you want a bit more of it, how does it sound if you really have more of it and not being so precious? <laughs> my, my guy sings a rich joke. I love Guy to Bits, but he'd be like, let's try that part up one quarter of one decibel. Let's try it down one quarter of one decibel. And then we'd spend like weeks turning stuff up and down a quarter of a dB. And then Frank's like, mate, turn it up six dB. Yep, yep. Wrong regional accent. Apologies, Frank, if you're listening. But I find that really great. And sometimes doing that big move is goes back to your point earlier, Travis, about not being sure if something's better or not. Mm, and yeah. instead of trying to check something with like a little difference, why don't you check it with a big difference and then you can reconfirm or you might just go, okay, we're turning it down a bunch. And then we turn it back up and you're you're less um you're less precious about your moves and more inclined to go oh right about there is where it feels good instead of like thinking about micro increments it encourages you to get your feeling back about what feels good yes a bit more nuance for the technically minded um engineers in there i hope you don't mind i'd like going to this in huge detail in the mix accelerator process when we talk about monitoring and the path you use at monitoring but for me in general i'll start my mixes really loud and then get quieter and quieter and quieter it could be that I haven't blasted on big speakers since the very start of my mix. Yeah. So I understand based on, on what I'm listening to and the information I'll get from my speakers at different volumes and different monitoring configurations, what kind of things I can reliably make a call on and then know, okay, I'm going to do this really briefly just to make a final call on this other thing. So I'm not trying to second guess any decisions at all and I'll understand at which point in the process I'll make clear final decisions about certain aspects of a mix. It's awesome. Love it. Let's do one, a little bit more nerdery about mixing. Let's nerd out, man. I haven't nerded out in ages. <laughs> well, I think you and I have similar opinions about templates. 
and I, I'm actually about to do a presentation for a local LA college about like template workflows. So I'm kind of, I want to pick mm-hmm. your brain. I think, and I believe that you think the same thing that templates increase your creativity and like free you up when a lot of people like maybe argue that they make things sound stale and make things sound the same, which I've never really experienced that. What kind of templates do you use in your work? And do you agree that they make you more creative? Or maybe did it take you a while to make them make you more creative? That makes sense. I'm with you. So I was a firm, staunch, like aggressively punk rock. Like I'm going to build everything from scratch for every record because I care and every record has to be unique and different kind of person for the first, you know, 15, 20 years of my career. And it wasn't until I started going like, hang on, there seems to be like a few broad categories of things you're doing over and over. And there's a few tricks. You realize, oh, I want this color, so I want to use this thing on that setting. And so I think the art of template design could be best summarized by the paraphrase of my favorite Einstein quote, which is as simple as possible, but no simpler. In other words, this is like this minimum optimum. What's the stuff that you need to do your work, but you don't want stuff overcomplicated? Whether it's mixing or like production, at one point I tried to build this huge production template that would be able to do absolutely everything and it basically became completely unwieldy, unusable, or you'd spend all your time like designing a template and building it and then the second thing you do in a session is want something else. So I like to just, I think about my template much more like a great kitchen You know, I love Indian cooking in particular because I tend to have, I can't remember the name, but it's, you keep your smaller spices in a bigger round spice thing and you just have a spoon sitting there. So depending on which dish you cook, you can go boom, 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 grab these three spices, throw them in instantly, not have to go to your cupboard and open stuff up. And so it's really just having the things you need available easily and quickly, but your template doesn't mix your song Although, who is, who is your guest who has the template for every song? Like uh, Billy Decker, Nashville guy, super, super. The fat. Deconator. The, yeah, yeah, Decorator. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, which is brilliant. But I think what I took away from him was he would have a really clear understanding of which template would be best used in which situation. And then it's a final bit of customization. Yes. Yeah. So my template is way more open-ended. I pretty much just have one, although I will say as a project progresses, then I'll refine that template so that any of the things I've learned on that project are carried over to new songs, if that makes sense. Yeah. It is really important for people to understand from a mixing point of view, even if you are mixing two different songs with the same artist, recorded on the same day, in the same microphone, the same recording chain, that they will basically want a different mix so it's the illusion that you can just plug and play and things will be done isn't really accurate so for me i i keep things very simple and open-ended i try to not have it too over controlled the biggest thing i actually have in my um, template is a ton a ton a ton of effects returns because i find they they take the most time to build and put in place and it might be that i've got i don't know kind of 10 or 15 just spatial effects returns just for my instruments and I might use two of them on a mix or one of them. And that's kind of the miracle of computers now is that we can have all this stuff just sitting there ready to go. Yeah. Whereas back in the day you would have one lexicon and you'd have to make sure it was on the right setting for that song. That's my philosophy as well as I think mine's maybe a little overcomplicated, but I mean, I have a ton of stuff in my template, Mm -hmm. but it's not like settings. I think a lot of people, when they think about templates, they're like, this is my vocal EQ. Like, there's like a couple vocal templates that have floated around LA or I've, I've done sessions and like some songwriter brings in something on a USB stick. They're like, can you use this? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not using that. <laughs> like, that's a no. 
But I mean, I have plugins that I like. They're inactive. They're not necessarily like heavy compression. They're not necessarily giant EQ moves. There's things that I do every mix that are there, but it enables you and it saves you time. It keeps you in the flow state, which is a lot of what you've talked about, especially in the mix accelerator. It's reacting to the music. Like you can't react to the music if you're making reverb sends. And if you're making the same reverb sends every day, then you're making a mistake. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just... exactly. So yeah, and I got to say like the fun thing is, um, I mean, in my template, I do have a bunch of vocal tracks that are all activated and they're all wrong for the song, but it's kind of fun to just drop stuff on and you know you're going to change it. I think that's a key thing is just knowing you're going to change it. But sometimes this stuff can be cool because you just get a surprise. Happy accident. I'm completely happy to say some of my like coolest vocal mixes have come about because I like dropped a thing on something and didn't really expect it. And you just go, oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. It's like back in the day patching into uh, like a compressor and the assistant not normaling it. And you're like, don't touch it. Yes. 100%. Whatever's going on in that box right now is good yeah. to go. Leave it. And so I do think it's important. Like people talk about like, oh, there's no surprises in digital. It's like, what on earth are you talking about? Like that stuff is crazy all the time. You make, yeah, there's so much room for chaos and for the unpredictable to happen. But I guess like what, just to really get clear on a distinction that is like my philosophy around templates. And again, this is both on a production and writing side, incidentally, everyone, the Beats Accelerator process is like my literal click-by-click, step-by-step drum programming methodology, but also how that builds into a practice system, which wound up being the foundation of how I went from taking a week to make a track to a few hours to be able to get like a really, really good demo. But it's about modularity. So you kind of have these smaller pieces that you can easily move around and plug in, whereas a template tends to imply this entire structure that everything just fits in. Is that distinction clear? Like, template is like everything is already in place and you just plug stuff into it, whereas modular is you have all of these little bits ready to go that you can just plug in. Yeah. It's kind of smaller units that you can add together really quickly to get to an end result. That's the best way to look at a template. Yeah. And I found with my, like, songwriting templates and stuff as well, I tried to have, like, okay, we're going to have all the basses busting through this and all these are going to bust through that and then vocals are going to bust through that and then this is going to happen through there and I wound up much happier with literally a blank screen but then just a bunch of stuff that I could drop on specifically if I wanted it. I find as well just anything that involves bussing in a template tends to confuse the living hell out of me. You know, not an effects end bus, but I, I literally have like a vocal bus and a drum bus and that's it. But anytime there's an opportunity for something to get sent to the wrong place, and then I think you actually use this term once, Travis, you have a booby trap in your mix that's waiting to blow up in your face when everyone's approved it and you're trying to print stems. So I also build my template understanding the limits of my own intelligence and the limits of my own ability to keep track of detail. So I try to make it a bit more idiot-proof as well because I know that I can be a massive idiot once I'm actually working. That's a good point. Yeah, there's nothing like finding a booby trap. <laughs> that, that, towards the end of a session, something was bust wrong and you were hearing it, but it wasn't getting printed. And I have an embarrassing story, by the way. Embarrassing story. This was like 10 or 12 years ago, so I learned the lesson. But I didn't realize through the whole mix that the entirety of a percussion group was being sent to the audio output size monitoring through, but wasn't going through the mix bus. And I printed all the mixes through the mix bus. So the client wound up approving it without all this percussion stuff that I thought was in there. Because I was sitting there listening to everything, printing, going like, yep, sounds great, and didn't realize that half, well, not half the stuff, a musically significant proportion of it wasn't even making it to their ears. 
so that was a, a real lesson for me of like, is is this all working? <laughs> and how can I, how can I avoid stuff like that? You know, you know the, what's frustrating about that. And this is more of a Pro Tools user problem. Is there's no easy way to solve that problem because you've mixed that percussion while listening to everything in the mix bus. You can't just take those things, put it in the mix bus, and like turn it down 4 dB. You also have no reference point for where it was. So you're like, oh, I liked it here. You can't AB, you know, because you've taken it away. It's just every time that happens to me, it's so frustrating because you're like, I really loved it. It was right here. And now it's totally different. Yeah. Yeah. Totally it's different. challenging, isn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Well, on our way to the close, uh, I did want to ask you one more question. You built an online community over the last few years. You've worked in studios long before that. How would you describe the way you see, quote, music community today versus like five or 10 years ago? Is it, do you, do you view music community as the same thing or do you view your community as different now? What an interesting question. I feel for me personally, five or 10 years ago is a terrible reference point. Cause that's when I was, um, I had my studio in Montreal, which was fantastic, but I literally went like six months once without speaking to someone. So maybe a little <laughs> bit further back than that. I don't know. <laughs> but if we, yeah, if we go a little bit further back, well, this is a really interesting one, and we can get into some broader socio-political thing about, like, we all live within our own echo chambers, right? And I had this amazing community experience coming up in London, but what really made me want to build all this stuff online was going back to New Zealand for four months in 2019, the town where I got really obsessed with records and decided I wanted to be a record producer, and reflecting on the fact that if it wasn't for the fact that I had British parents and I could get this passport, and, like, I'm okay to say my parents paid for my ticket to London— most people on the planet wouldn't have access to that opportunity. Yeah. So I was thinking really hard about the fact like I massively benefited from being able to land in this situation and learn from people. And I want to make this available to anyone anywhere in the world. And that is compounded by the fact now that the model in the music industry is very different to how it was at that point in time, late, late 90s, turn of the millennium, because technology has given us so many capabilities but most of the producers and mixers I know, like 100% of this conversation, we have our own private room on our own private property. And quite frankly, like, I don't want a bunch of random people in my house. Yeah. But, you know, we're also at the age where the people that we learned from were at when we learned from them. So I see this much more as like, there's always in our industry being a duty for people with experience to pass on and share that knowledge. And the landscape has always been shifting. So this is really like we're, we're trying to take advantage of that right now. What's really cool, and especially what I love about doing this online, is that you can get exposed to people from anywhere in the world. And one of the most gratifying things I've seen is people from opposite sides of the world who have met in these conversations that we were having, like collaborating together and working together. So I think that we're in this position now where those opportunities can go far beyond what we had in the past. And we're also in this nuanced thing. So just so everyone knows as well, like the Complete Producer Network is free. I wanted to make a free community that was available for anyone that doesn't have flashing banner ads. You're not tracked by Mark Zuckerberg or Google or anything like that. Like none of the posts in there are tracked. Terrible as a business model for a website, <laughs> but wonderful experience for people who are in it. So I support the Complete Producer Network through the Beats Accelerator process, Mix Accelerator process, and Damien's online studio, and they are paid programs. And people might say, yo, information should be free. And I'd say, 
on one hand, yes, but on the other hand, all these people I learned from and the people that you learned from, Travis, like you were in there doing something in return that allowed them to work. That's true. That's true. So I do want to just specifically say I have paid programs and it's just like I don't do work on spec for clients because I find that people who expect you to do stuff on spec themselves aren't committed to the process. Anytime I've done stuff on spec, not anytime, but in general as a philosophy, it's not really worth it. So there's a difference there which is that back in the day, I could get myself into a situation to learn from other people and I would be sweeping the floors. But you would also have to be in a situation where you could afford to take the time to spend a day working for free. And this is where, you know, my situation, I got to move to London, but I always supported myself. And now pretty much if you want to go and be an intern in like a studio in New York or London, then this is where we talk about, you know, the arts are being not overrun, but disproportionately represented by like the children of the aristocracy who can live on a trust fund, who can afford an apartment in New York to go and work for free for someone for a couple of years. Personally, that's also where I've had a hard time hiring people is I don't like having people work for free. So I have a different model where I can consciously distill a lifetime worth of experience. And I've been obsessed with transmitting knowledge in an effective way because the education that I've received online has all the stuff that's been good has been by people who have really thought about how can I create a transformational product for someone. I know this is a bit of a tangent, but we are talking about online communities. So there's a nuance here. So yeah. I could do something for you, which if you really applied yourself to it across a couple of weeks, that's basically 15 years of experience that you can shortcut in that time. And then we have a structure then for you to meet other people to put that work into and to turn that knowledge into action instead of kind of having to progress linearly through a hierarchical system where, especially if we're talking about coming up in the traditional studio ranks, part of it is you're waiting for someone further up the chain for their priorities to shift and move on from a position so that a position opens up. Mm -hmm. Whereas community and the opportunities online now are 100% reliant on the vision and the work of the person looking for the result themselves. So if you're applying this, I'm building myself completely independently outside of a traditional system. That's what we call a permissionless society or not based on any gatekeepers. So you can work on stuff as hard or as smart as you want and make as much progress in as short a time as possible. And being able to tap into online communities and ways of finding knowledge online can be a huge shortcut. It can also be very dangerous if you wind up spending two years just watching YouTube tutorials and not putting anything into action as well. So, you know, so that's also just the way that I actually designed my programs was to get people into action and get people having results through a structured way of presenting information and presenting that information in a way where you can really build in a clear, a clear staircase of knowledge that's actionable. Broad answer, but I just, you know, I do think it's important just to mention like, yeah, I have some paid stuff and it's, and it's, it's, it's worth it. <laughs> well, what I heard in that is that you've assumed a new role in your music community. You realize, like you said, you know, we're the age that a lot of the people we learned from were when we started. And I think that's the takeaway there is that you recognize that. You also recognize the way the world is different. You've seen it change. You've seen the potential pitfalls of the way that it was. You see the potential perks of the way the world can be. And you've built this thing, which we talked about in, you know, our prior interview to kind of recreate that studio culture, but except online where anybody can access it. And you're totally right about 
the aristocracy-ish vibes of being able to survive in a city like New York or Los Angeles and have the opportunity to learn from the people that work in those cities is almost not doable without saving a lot of money or working 18 hours of paid work so that you can have a six-hour internship. Is that at 24? Yeah. Yeah. With internships, it's like, okay, I've just done a two-year degree. It's costing me like hundreds or thousands of dollars a month to be in this city. And then you're going and getting sandwiches. You know what I mean? You're not even allowed in the room. And then so much of, I think, I'm going to say, especially New York, just because I know this, this carries through across a ton of industries over there, creative industries, is that people just expect you to be an underpaid intern for years sometimes. So it's like, how the hell do you even build this? But I guess the other, you know, this isn't so much about just about community. But for me, it's what I found really interesting, Travis, is, you know, I've been hired through my whole adult life to help one artist, one team at a time deliver a record. And once I built these programs, once I had enough conversations with enough different artists, this is kind of fascinating because for me now, I can literally help tens or hundreds of people at a time deliver an album. So I actually still see this as I'm helping bring amazing music into the world. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I have this different structure of programs where you can, it's kind of like knowledge-based stuff that you can implement. And then the online studio is the real-time side of it. But it's basically helping so many more people at once deliver a record to the point where it's almost like there has to be more and more that makes me want to commit to doing one record with one artist because then suddenly I can't help 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 people in that one time. Yeah, You're just working with one person. So that's also just being the really amazing kind of gratifying side of it, seeing someone go like, you know what, I'm not just going to buy one more plugin, I'm going to invest in this program, and then you see the actual results they have. Just like if they say, you know what, I'm not going to spend three years learning to mix, I'm going to invest in Travis mixing my song for me, and then they get this great result. So it's it's basically another way that I can help people also now that like Real Talk as a producer, I'm priced out of the range of the majority of people in the world, but I can still help you make a record. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. And I, I could say from somebody that's been part of the Complete Producer Network since you started it and has hung out in these, you know, masterminds and I've done your courses, even though I mix records for a living, I still did the Mix Accelerator. You leave an impact on all those people. And in turn, I think it, it results in all of those people in that community also leaving an impact on each other, even when you're not in a conversation on the forum there's a really engaging, impactful conversation happening, you know, even without you being there. You were a sponsor on the podcast. I've said it a million times. It's just a, a great community. But yeah, it's awesome. I applaud that. Yeah. And that's a great thing is just seeing when there's, this is the comparison to a really good multi-room studio. You get in an environment where everyone else is obsessed with the same thing. And funnily enough, I feel that this is actually the strength that online communities have over especially online communities where people are making a commitment to a result right yeah compared to a lot of college programs like my friend louise burns has been teaching at um at a college in vancouver and she said like there's a class of 30 people and she only really thinks one of them actually wants a career in music so there's a lot of like i've finished high school i'm supposed to go to college i guess i want to do something with music and then you know folks will wind up going into into programs because you're supposed to go to college yeah and I even remember when I was at doing my audio engineering degree, a guest lecturer came in and he said like, hey, how many of you want to be engineers? And I put my hand up and like no one else in the room put their hand up. And I was like, why are you at the school of audio engineering if you don't want to be an audio engineer? It was kind of kind of hilarious. Yeah, but listen, Travis, I, I'm getting the sense, I'm a very sensitive guy, I'm getting the sense that we're moving towards a wrap up. So I was wondering if you'd mind if I ask you a couple of questions. 
before we go. All right, let's let's do it. Just like last time, you got to flip it around on me. Bonus episode. So, well, this is, you know, what are we, episode 80, 81, did you say now? This should be 81 if my math is correct. So you've had conversations with, I guess if we include your bonus episodes, 78, 79 different people working in music with music careers who have built growth into their careers. So I'm curious, what do you think are the few key traits that you keep seeing coming up over and over again in these people? I think a lot of them we've kind of touched on. The people that put the work in, regardless of the outcome. People that are, you know, just head down focused. And to a certain extent, there's a never give up, never fail attitude. Like you would just always go, even though you didn't do a gig in June, it didn't matter. You're not going to quit and get another job. You're just going to keep pushing. Because, you know, like you said, like I've said, a career in music is the long game. There's no and if or but about it. I've worked with songwriters that had a hit early on and didn't put the work in. And I never saw them in sessions again. You know what I mean? It's, it doesn't matter if you found success quickly or not. It's not over. You still have to keep growing. So that's something that I've seen is that people are always growing, always working, always learning. Something else that I think, particularly for producers and mixers, I've seen a common thread of people that get very invested with the music and the artists. They stay away from transactional type situations where it's like, thank you for your thousand dollars. Here are your stems. You know, that doesn't work. And that goes back to the trust thing that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Big time. But those are, to me, the, the biggest, the most obvious ones. Also, a very common final answer, you know, like, have you ever redefined what success meant to you? I think a lot of people who I enjoyed the conversation, they kind of had an answer like, you know, just making music or just getting paid to work in music has always been success. It didn't matter whether I got a Grammy. And I think that's an important one. It's just that you're doing what you love. And so they didn't have to redefine what success was to them, which is a question I haven't asked you. You're getting that before we go. (laughs) Awesome. But yeah, I think those are the things that are most common in the interviews that are bouncing through my head right now as I'm caught off guard. So it's fantastic. Love getting you off guard. And then a, a follow-up question. Have there been any approaches or insights that have like really surprised you or felt counterintuitive that have kind of shifted the way you think about this whole world? I don't think so. I will say that uh, Pedro Coloni had a, a Fairchild radiator tip that he shared on vocals, and I've added that to my mix <laughs> template. But, you know, to a certain extent, I bring people on the show that I think want to have the conversations that I want to have. And I also kind of, at times, set them up to have those conversations with the questions. So uh, there's definitely been like crazy aha moments for me. But a lot of the time, it's actually nice to reinforce my beliefs with a conversation with another person. Like, okay, somebody else working in this industry believes the same things I believe. So that's validating, but it's not like mind-blowing. It's like, okay, here's another person doing what... I want to do or that I already do. It's validating, I guess, for what I would like the music industry to be for me and for other people. It's nice to see that other people think that. It's a horrible answer there, but... (laughs) Well, let me ask you this another way because I feel like this might be a little bit what you're talking about here. I feel as time's gone on, it's almost like there's thinking that there's some hidden piece of knowledge has never proven itself. It's not like there's some secret to unlock, but each time you revisit a core premise, 
you'll approach it differently. You'll have a slightly different perspective on it. You'll get something new from it. So even just reminding yourself like, hey, the most important thing is making sure the artist loves this record. It can mean something different every single time you do it. And the knock-on effect of that in terms of the action you take can be completely different each time. Approaching that question as an intern versus as an established producer, it will mean entirely different things to you as well. So maybe there's something, Travis, for you where you're getting to have these conversations where similar themes come up that are expressed differently and you've now been doing progressions for quite a few seasons of your life. So you're probably letting them resonate with you as you're at different points in your journey. Oh, totally. I I definitely think it's important to reinforce stuff throughout your life because it's going to hit you different. The conversation we're having right now is hitting me differently than the conversation that we had two years ago. It's almost like a weekly review or like a monthly review, you know, where you can like reflect (laughs) on like what you've done or, or didn't do and think about like, how does the answer to that same question at the end of every episode feel different based on the person that gave it, even if it's kind of similar to the last one after you hear their story. So yeah, it's kind of the, you know, never stop learning, keep reviewing where you are and reflecting on it because things are different as your life gets different. Reviews are huge. (laughs) I threaten to do reviews. I'm not very good at it. It's hard. It's hard. It is hard. Yeah. And just, just a quick note for anyone, if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed on this journey and it comes up over and over again, no matter where you are, I've gone through a big phase of it recently, just taking that moment to zoom out and get your thoughts out onto paper really like thinking about what are all the things I'm trying to achieve? What do I need to work on next? Something that could feel like there's a million and one things that you have no chance in hell of doing internally. Once you actually write it out, you're like, oh yeah, I could do that. No problem. Or you might realize like, we need to stop doing this one thing over here. We need to double down on another thing over there. So yeah, but that fix never lasts. It's a bit like you're sailing across the ocean and you're always having to trim your sails, right? You can't just like set them in one thing and lash the tiller and then go have a sleep for two months. You know, if you're feeling actually particularly stuck or like particularly frustrated doing a review and like being serious and reflecting back on, you know, what you've been doing for like the last quarter or something, it actually makes you feel better. Yes. Because if you're like, oh, I haven't been mixing as many songs as I want to mix or I haven't been doing what I want to the podcast or whatever it is, right? Whatever your frustration is, you sit down and you look at what the realistic like what actually happened, not what you think happened, but what actually happened, you can be like, oh, well, it's not the way I imagine at all. It's better. You know, I had more listeners, even though it feels like I had less listeners, or I had higher paying mixes, even though it felt like I didn't do any, like whatever that thing is that's frustrating you at the time, you can really kind of flip the script on it if you look at it. Because the way you view what's going on is probably not reality unless you can objectively step away and look back. It's like we tend to remember the one thing that went wrong and not the 300 things that went right. Exactly. Right? I think like we're actually wired that way. So I think that's such a good point that you make and really taking the times as well to acknowledge like, you know what? I've made some really good progress here. Because I don't know about you, Travis, but most nights I go to sleep feeling like I didn't achieve anywhere near what I wanted to achieve that day. (laughs) And kind of like it's almost like this other meta skill you develop is just getting okay with that fact. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm really trying to actually, I'm kind of pep talking myself about this this morning. I, I do my morning pages not to share with the world, but something came up this morning for me, which is like this thing that I'm working on right now that I'm feeling actually really stressed out about, what would happen if I just enjoyed it? It's kind of like what you're talking about earlier. What Don't think about the outcome, just enjoy the process of making it. Yeah. And this is something new that's a huge challenge for me. 
and you know i've had the most intense like phone pickup like any distraction possible probably one of the most intense series of that of just feeling myself pulling back from the cutting edge from the uncomfortable heat of learning and growing and maybe it's because i'm trying to put too much on it trying to make too much ride on it instead of just enjoying it and that's often something i'm talking to artists about in the online studio as well as like oh my god i need to finish this ep and it just feels like this intense heavy thing and it's like hey man you want to change the hi-hat sound just like change the hi-hat it's no big deal and bringing that kind of almost no big deal energy into into those challenging moments can be huge. I'm working on that one at the moment, Travis. It's a... <laughs> I mean, we're, everybody's always working, right? We're always working on something. Yeah. And I guess, that, you know, going into that theme we were talking about, it's like these similar things keep coming up over and over and over again in different situations. I might have been, you know, 15 years ago stressing out over which 1176 to use and taking five days to finish a mix because I was worried I had the wrong compressor on there, whereas that's not really an issue now. Um, but you kind of push through that discomfort in a way. The uncomfortable stuff is, I don't know, I just, you have to go towards the uncomfortable stuff. That's like one of the big takeaways from doing this podcast for two years, especially in the beginning, like way outside my comfort zone. Yeah. Like even right now, I'm thinking, hey, now we're on YouTube. Now I have to look at the camera. Am I looking at the camera? No, I'm looking over here, <laughs> looking over there. But I'm not going to delete this episode. I'm just going to put it up and I'm going to remember, hey, next time, you know, put Damien's video somewhere where you can look at Damien and look at the camera at the same time. <laughs> yeah, doing the uncomfortable stuff and understanding that it's okay for things not to be perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, if the intention is there and the emotion is there, and the purpose of why you're making something or doing something or writing something, if that's authentic, then then that's good. I'm not going to edit the podcast for 72 hours anymore. I'm going to let Steven do it and he can edit it for as long as he wants. But, <laughs> but yeah, you just have to do the stuff that's hard and then you'll learn that you, things don't have to be perfect. It's better if they're not. It's only holding you back. Better if they're not. Better if they're not. Let's say that again, everyone. Better if they're not. <laughs> and that's, you know, mixing is such a fantastic example. We're talking about that quarter of a dB move versus like we're going to do six dB moves. Yeah. There's nothing more boring than perfect and kind of getting okay with the fact that something might feel a bit unresolved or that you don't get the huge fireworks display when things are done, you know, or that done is actually a choice, not a place. You know, <laughs> that's good. There's a quote right there. Done as a choice, not a place. There you go. Yes. Stick that one on your socials. There you go. Now, before we go, uh -huh. everyone, I'm going to take over Travis's podcast here. Everyone, I, I hope you don't mind. Travis and I are friends. We touch base every now and then. I really appreciate, you know, we're both very busy, but Travis and I are both people who are trying to share knowledge about music production outside of the normal channels and we're trying to do this in addition to a very demanding full-time job which is making records and in both our cases looking after our families even though we have very different configurations now travis is terrible at communicating the value of what he does and so i just want to take a moment to say this really clearly please don't edit this out What's going on at the moment, Travis? There's a Patreon going on for progressions. There, There is a Patreon for progressions. That there is, is a Patreon is. going on for progressions. Yeah. Please, if you found this episode, or maybe not this episode, maybe you found me incredibly annoying <laughs> and you found another episode really helpful, please, please forward this episode to a friend. I don't think, listeners, you properly understand how much work, how much effort, how much dedication Travis is bringing to this podcast. It's been 
wonderful to watch. I'm incredibly proud of you, Travis, on this. And I think even from the stuff I've built online, you have no idea how just a simple gesture of telling a friend about it, inviting a friend in, what an impact that can make. What an impact like leaving a review or actually going, you know what, the stuff I've learned on this podcast, if I look back over the last year or the last week or the last two years of my life, this has really changed the way I've done business and I can see the results. So like jump on the Patreon for God's sake and use that as a demonstration of your commitment to your own growth. But yeah, Travis, I I just really publicly want to big you up for what you're doing here. I know that you're squirming because you're not used to anyone saying this and we both came up through the engineering thing where no one's ever going to give you a compliment, but you're doing a fantastic job and to be back on episode 81, 80 episodes later, like you have stuck your word, you're improving every day, you're living in the discomfort and I really massively applaud you and respect you for what you're doing here. So big ups. Thank you for making this available for everyone and audience like let's do what we can to get the word out there for Travis. Well, I appreciate Don't that. Don't edit this out, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate you coming back. Cool. But I, I have to ask you two more questions before you go. All right. I just wanted to make sure we got that in there before you said, okay, we're done. Okay. All right. All right. You just want cool. to make sure it was in the middle. We can yeah, chop yeah. that. Well, I appreciate the kind words, man. I, I really do. So anyway, back to the episode. <laughs> <laughs> So I've got a new question for season three, and it's about uh, just sharing music. Do you, is there any artists or any records you're listening to right now that you think people are sleeping on or that are currently having a big impact on you, even if they're not new music? Like, what's something that you think people should go listen to? You know, what's funny is I keep thinking I need to do a, like, what are my records of the year kind of roundups at the end of the year, and we're recording this when all these kind of roundups at the end of the year are starting to come out. But I am so not plugged into the release cycles that my records of the year would be the records that I found this year. But genuinely, the majority of what I listen to is is the records that I'm working on. But the record I heard recently that I got obsessed with was actually Jesse Ware's album from 2020. I'm trying to remember what it's called. But yeah, Jessie's from London. Her debut album, I think in 2012, I was mad obsessed with. And this new one is kind of like if Robin and Sade and Massive Attack's string section like had a baby. Produced and co-written with James Ford, like amazing record. Um, And I love all kinds of like weird abstract hip hop and chopped up breaks and stuff. But every now and then I just want like a really big, beautiful, expansive record with like sky high hooks and it's like that with amazing modular synths so that's been my favorite jesse if you're listening i'd love to work with you let's make it happen i'm sure you're a fan of progressions jesse if you're on jesse's team can you make it happen you know how much i love my artists and how much i care but yeah that that one's been huge otherwise um everyone needs to be following lido pimienta i actually haven't worked on her records by the way so just a correction from the top there but um lido was very involved in the bomba stereo family she brought me in on that record. So I know she's working on a ton of stuff right now that's fascinating. This is a bit of an aside, but I've really been like, it's been quite beautiful for me just to start to move into another part of the world. And the friends I've made like in Mexico City and Latin America, who've really like embraced me, Colombia has been just so kind to me. And it's been a real honor getting to be involved in those records. So I will suggest that everyone actually listens to the Bomba Stereo album as well. Jose from Bomba Stereo has another project called Paraisos. That's amazing. I just mastered that for him. Um, Wasn't involved in the production, but that record is killer. If you're not listening to music in other languages, it's a wonderful thing to do. So yeah, I think those are are my main hints, main tips. 
Awesome. I'll put I'll put links to Spotify or, or whatnot in the show notes. Great. And then uh, the question that I didn't get to ask you last time because it didn't exist mm. is: uh, Was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? And this is something we've probably touched on multiple times. But is there an answer that comes to mind? I, I think actually many times. Really, I'm having trouble pinpointing this. So this is more more of a crossfade. But I feel like. For me, things have really changed from how can I get myself into a position two to now it's how can I serve this for this person? How can I help this person make an impact? So success for me goes back to that, like not just how can I make something that the artist loves, but how can I really help people make an impact with culture? I'm a huge believer in the value of art and a huge believer in the value of culture. And even though for any of us individually working on making music, we might feel it's kind of meaningless in the grand scheme of things, I believe that collectively, if our society was more creative, if more people in our society had a creative outlet and could express themselves, then that would inform the culture of our society, and culture is a primary driver of civilization. So literally, <laughs> we're making the world a better place by making that kick drum knock, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I think like feeling that larger purpose has been really great and getting curious about how can I reach as many people as possible. And certainly going from always being hired by a label or an artist to now I can help other people that wouldn't have access to me normally especially people in different parts of the world. Like that's been a really big, huge redefiner. And I feel like I have so much more still to do on that one. Love it. And now I have to ask you about your next biggest goal. What's your current biggest goal? That's not your goal from last time. Honestly, dude, I'm still working on that goal. Well, it's the same. It's, it's, well, let's put it this way. Like I have the larger vision of how delivering that goal fits into a life that I'll be really proud of when I die. Like I'm already really stoked on my life, but... I alluded to before, like Complete Producer Network and all the activities on there really seamlessly integrating with my work as a producer and a collaborator. And at the moment, there's a bit of an overlap that I'm quite happy with, but I really have this vision for how that's all going to work together. And in particular, I really want to explore the future of the model for us in the music industry. And I really feel the last few years have seen a huge shift, even like 2020, just like it was quite hard to get your music on Spotify. And now there's so many ways that are easy to do that. If I think about 2008, I was trying to figure out how I could set up an online label and just like, how can I get my music available? There, there was nothing out there that could do it. So this kind of seismic shift in not just the music industry, but humanity is in, in the permissionless age. Right. Let me know if we need to unpack what that means. I'm sure you've covered it before. Basically, the gatekeeper world versus the gatekeeperless world. Yeah. Um, I think there's so much potential in there. There's still so much work to do. Everyone, you know, we will have all seen the posts about how Spotify doesn't pay out enough per stream, but there's all these other opportunities at the same time that that build into that. And this whole ecosystem we can build. I'm being a little bit vague, but I'm I'm really interested in that. And even for me as a traditional record producer, being able to bring different models to the way I work with artists and what I've done through the Complete Producer Network, even with Damien's online studio and getting rights with artists to be able to live stream our genuine real world professional sessions in real time and giving people anywhere in the world the chance to sit virtually in the room, which I think is an entirely different experience to any other kind of online learning. Like, 
I've been able to make records with artists that I couldn't have because I have this new model as well. So I really want to see that through and then build that then into an amazing body of work that's happening in this new environment, this new era. That's awesome. I love it. So what's the next small step? (laughs) The next small step is I'm firing up Notion and uh, working on some copy. Yeah. And actually, this is, I don't know when this is going out, but I'm right at the moment, everyone, I'm actually like building a presentation called Building Your Production Breakthrough. And I'm trying to distill like some 30,000 foot. These are the things which, if you look at music production through this lens, can shortcut potentially like years of wasted time. Love it. So I'm building on doing this as a, as a free presentation. It really feeds into the Beats Accelerator process as well. It gets a lot into modularity and really how to ensure that... <laughs> it all comes back to creativity and vision in the driving seat, but I'm just trying to figure out how to articulate a lot of concepts that I feel I've learned subconsciously over the decades, some conscious breakthroughs that I've had, and how to communicate this big picture in a way that people can assess their next steps through that lens. That's awesome. If that makes sense. So yeah, so that's literally what I'm working on when we get off this call. Hoping to do the first test run of that in the next week or so. Sign me up. I'll be there. This episode will be out in January, so people should look out for look out for that. But Damien, this has been awesome, man. I really enjoyed this. I appreciate you taking the time to come back on the show. Haven't seen you in in a couple of weeks, so this has been a good hang. <laughs> yeah, man. I appreciate it. Uh, please tell people websites, socials, anything you want to share with people. This is your little spot here. Okay, awesome. Well, I would love to invite you, dear listener, to the Complete Producer Network. Again, positive, supportive online environment. And the key thing about the network, this is actually, I wish I could have mentioned this when you asked me the question about online community. You learn when you ask questions. So understanding how the general community and the Complete Producer Network works is get in there and ask questions. We have a little, a few questions we ask when you join. And 99% of people say, I want to join to learn about music production. And then 98% of those people don't ask any questions. So one of my favorite quotes I came across recently is the quality of your life is determined by the quality of your questions. And you cannot solve the problem that you are currently in from that same level of consciousness. So I would like to invite you to the Complete Producer Network, www.completeproducer.net. Hit request to join, answer the questions. It's free. I keep it off the main internet so that it is a quiet, positive, supportive place, as we discussed before. And then think about a question and ask it. Because the one thing I can guarantee you is that if you don't ask questions, if you don't put yourself out there, you're not going to grow. And in the internet era, it is too easy to think that we're going to sit back passively, do music production Netflix, swipe through stuff, watch a bunch of tutorials, and our life is going to change. And I'm here to tell you that it is not until you take action. So... (laughs) You're invited to the Complete Producer Network. Please get in there, ask some questions. I try to answer all of them I can myself, but there are so many great people in there who are very generous with their knowledge. So that's the main place. Otherwise, I'm here is Damien, D-A-M-I-A-N, on all the socials. And I'm looking to update my website soon, DamienTaylor.com. It's a couple of years out of date. Very grimy, but that links to everywhere else. Amazing. Awesome. Well, I will let you get to your presentation. I got I to gotta do a mix. Great. Will you put your Patreon in the show notes, Travis? There will be a link. The Patreon in the show notes. Okay, great. To rate the show, review the show, uh, and you know, share the show. Honestly, sharing the show is, I think, the most valuable thing you can do. As much as I would like everyone to be involved in the Patreon, it really is like when somebody says, "Hey, 
I enjoy this podcast and they tell somebody that's never heard it, that person seriously considers listening to it as opposed to like running an ad or like friend to friend is the best way to grow yeah. these things on the internet. So 100%. if you could share the show with a friend, I'd appreciate it. But thank you, Damien. Big ups, Travis. Yes, Good to see you. see you. That's it for episode 81. Thanks to Damien for coming on the show. Please go check out his work and join the Complete Producer Network. It's great. You won't regret it. Also, thanks to all of you for listening and watching. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, do whatever you can to help push this out to more people. And don't forget to check out our other videos or episodes on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. So I will see you all next time.